0: Support for Start Making Sense comes from Can It Happen Here, edited by Cass Sunstein. Can It Happen Here is a powerful collection of essays from distinguished scholars, including Martha Minow and Samantha Power. In his 1935 dystopian novel, It Can't Happen Here, Sinclair Lewis described the rise of fascism in America. Now, Harvard professor and former Obama advisor Cass R. Sunstein has collected some of America's greatest minds to debate whether or not authoritarianism can triumph in the United States. Publishers Weekly calls Can It Happen Here provocative and timely. Can It Happen Here is available wherever books are sold. From Day Street Books. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Weiner. Today, Kath Apollo takes up the arguments of some of our friends on the left who are Russiagate skeptics. Also, March 16th is the 50th anniversary of the Milai Massacre. We have an interview with the man who stopped the Milai Massacre, American helicopter pilot Hugh Thompson. But first, Robert Reich, He says it's time to turn away from Trump's unbridled greed and restore the idea of the common good. Robert Reich served as labor secretary under President Bill Clinton. Now he's a professor at the University of California at Berkeley and senior fellow at the Blum Center for Developing Economies. His new book is called The Common Good. Robert Reich, welcome
1: back. Well, thank you, John.
0: So there's a familiar... Republican argument against the idea of the common good. And there's only individuals. It's my responsibility to do what's best for me and my family. It's your responsibility to take care of yourself. If you have problems, if you have health problems or job problems, that's too bad. But that's not my problem. You are not my responsibility. The state should not force me to pay for your problems, you should take responsibility for yourself. I think you've probably heard this argument.
1: Oh, I've heard it for a very (laughs) long time. Uh, It's absurd. Uh, It it actually fails to understand our interdependence, uh, particularly in very basic and fundamental ways. For example, if I can't rely on you to obey the law, uh, then I'm going to have to take all kinds of precautions that Uh, ultimately are going to cost me and you a great deal. Uh, Multiply that by every member of a society and you can see how important it is uh, just to have basic norms. I mean, uh, consider uh, we're in an airport, all of the luggage is now coming out of the airplane, we're in the luggage rack. If everybody had to worry that everybody else would take their luggage, uh, we could manage that. There would be a lot of police. There'd be a lot of security. There would be all kinds of security checks. It might add to the gross domestic product, (laughs) uh, but it would be miserable. And that is metaphorically what is happening all over America and has been happening, quite frankly, for 35, 40 years or more.
0: There's another argument that we hear from Trump supporters, which is a little different from that one, in the common good you cite the Declaration of Independence which starts we the people and of course the big question is who is the we in we the people and some Trump supporters maybe a lot of Trump supporters have a very clear idea of who the we is the we is uh, white citizens Christian white citizens they they feel very much engaged with obligated to part of a we but it's a we that excludes dark-skinned people, uh, Muslims, immigrants. So they have a conception of the common good, but it's different from ours.
1: Yes. I mean, racism is not new. Racism existed since the founding of the republic. Indeed, the Constitution did exclude African-Americans. Uh, So, we're not talking about something that is a new phenomenon. uh, But as it was gradually interpreted, and I want to go back to the Declaration of Independence and the notion that all men are created equal, all people are created equal. Our our founding concepts gradually, uh, thank goodness, began to embrace all people, not just white men, but also black people and women. Uh, And it has been a struggle, Uh, and we are embracing gay people and a lot of others. Uh, We've never actually fulfilled our ideals by a long shot. The difference, I want to say, and I say in the book and argue in the book, is that at least um, before 1980, before the Reagan administration, uh, most people in this country understood that those ideals were important to try to achieve, we had a Civil Rights Act. We had a, uh, a civil rights movement voting. I, I lost a very dear friend. Uh, he was he was murdered in Mississippi in the summer of 1964. Uh, we had an anti-Vietnam War movement. We, uh, we were motivated by ideals as to what this country ought to be. Not everybody subscribed to the same ideals in the same way. But even when we had different views of what the, those ideals should be, we at least understood that we had ideals about how we cope with our differences, how we deal with disagreements. It was called a democracy. Um, And uh, even those fundamental agreements about how we deal with our disagreements are beginning to fall apart. I mean, we we have a man now at the White House who I don't blame for all of this. He's sort of the culmination of decades of turning our backs on these fundamentals, including democracy. I mean, you know, John, you know as well as I, I think most people who are listening understand that it's only when you're in danger of losing something that's very valuable to you that you begin to understand its value. And I think that people are beginning to say to themselves, wait a minute, uh, this democracy is fragile, and we must stand up to what's occurring. You just said you don't,
0: blame Trump. You don't see Trump as the cause of our problems.
1: I blame Trump for a lot of things. Tell me more about what you mean. Oh, I blame him for all sorts of things. I'm talking about the initial cause. That is, uh, out in, uh, let's say in 2015, early in 2015, I was out in the industrial Midwest and uh, several red states Uh, talking to people in preparation for a a project I was working on uh, and asked people who they were thinking about voting for. And I was amazed, John, at the number of people who said to me, we are trying to make our decision between... Now, remember, this is the start of 2015. This is before we're really into the the fury of the 2016 election. Uh, They said to me, we're trying to make a decision between this fellow named Donald Trump... And another fellow named Bernie Sanders. Yeah. And I remember saying again and again, uh, "Wait a minute, you can't be serious." I mean, they're two they're on different planets, these two. But what I heard back uh, from working people, many of them working class, some union households. remember, I had been Secretary of Labor. I knew many of these people i had i had I had you know for years kind of gone out there and and talked to union groups. What I got back from them is that, well, Trump and Sanders, they're going to shake things up. Uh, They're going to take on the elites. Uh, They're going to respond to a game that's rigged against me. I haven't had a raise in 35 years. Uh, And then some people expressed very specific anger about the system, but almost everybody felt that the elites had conspired against them in some way. Now, obviously, uh, Trump used that anger uh, and channeled it against blacks and Muslims and African-Americans uh, abroad and, and I- immigrants and, I mean, everybody else you can imagine who was a, a, a easy scapegoat. This is what uh, demagogues do and have done historically. Uh, Bernie Sanders used that anger, uh, I think, more constructively in terms of talking about a a political revolution, but both of them were undisputably at that time, indisputably at that time, uh, anti-establishment, and I think that uh, although Trump has proven himself to be, you know, not not only did he not drain the swamp, he's made the swamp far worse, uh, but he's still two-faced. He still is telling his base that he's anti-establishment that he is a populist while at the same time he goes to washington and rakes in the money and you know uh, uh, basically does the bidding of the wealthy
0: you said you visited some of the red states in 2015 a year before the election have you been back lately
1: yes uh, several months ago i was back in several of these states uh, talking to several of those same people and they told me that they uh, although they voted for Trump, many of them, they regret it. Not a, a huge number. I mean, my free-floating focus group <laughs> is self-selected. I think that some of them, you know, obviously are saying to that to me because they know that I want to hear that. Uh, but there's no doubt that Trump's support is eroding for a couple of reasons. The evangelicals are beginning, just beginning, to have some qualms about his... Uh, sort of blatant uh, escapades, you know, the Stormy Daniels stuff. Uh, And some of the union people I talk with are just beginning to recognize that the big tax cut is actually not going to help them nearly as much as it will help the very wealthy and the big corporations. Uh, But it's just starting, just starting. In your book, The Common Good, you talk
0: about the the way... We, everyone in the past, has used honor and shame to enforce the common good. I was thinking about just in the last couple of weeks about how after the school killings in Parkland, uh, Florida, we have that campaign to shame the corporations that gave special benefits to members of the NRA. Was it Delta and United and Hertz and Avis and MetLife and Chubb Insurance all withdrew Special benefits for NRA members. Some people said, well, this doesn't really hurt the NRA. It's just a symbolic thing. What do you think?
1: Corporations spend huge amounts of money on public relations. And the last thing they want is to be tarnished with bad PR. Now, it is true that members of the NRA could retaliate against these companies for disassociated with the NRA. But these companies have made a calculation that they would do worse by being associated, by staying, maintaining their association. Uh, Look at the Me Too movement as another example. Look at how quickly... Companies disassociated themselves from people who were even alleged to have been predators, sexual predators. Companies don't want that. It's the last thing they want. Um, in terms of shaming, look at the effects of those students from Parkland, Florida, high school, uh, who shamed adults into being adults. Now, they're still doing that, but they have had an extraordinary influence. You know, John, every time I start becoming a little bit pessimistic about this country, I think of those students, I think of my students, I think of young people across this country, I think of all of the political activism that this dark cloud called Donald Trump has generated. Uh, More activism in this country than I remember since the anti-Vietnam War days. Activism that is political. I'm not talking about just demonstrating. I'm talking about people who are running for office, who are running for local, state, federal office, congressional campaigns, women, more women actually running for office now than I think ever before in the history of this country. And this is something to be celebrated.
0: Last thing, you mentioned that you lost a friend in 1964 in Mississippi People I know who were killed in Mississippi were uh, Mickey Schwerner, Andrew Goodman, and James Chaney. Who, who, who was your friend? Mickey Schwerner. Want to tell us a little about Mickey Schwerner as an example of serving the common good?
1: Well, Mickey Schwerner was uh, a fellow who I got to know. He was older than I was at the time. I was a, a, a kid, and I very often, because I was very short for my age, I'd get bullied. And so I teamed up with older boys who were willing to be my protectors. It was kind of the original protection racket. (laughs) And Mickey Schwerner was one of them. Um, And then in the summer of 64, he was registering voters, along with Goodman and Cheney. And he was tortured and murdered by the sheriff of Neshoba County, Mississippi, and his henchmen. And when I heard that The fellow who had protected me from the bullies when I was a kid was tortured and murdered by the real bullies of America. I think it changed my life. Because people are still being bullied, John. You know that as well as I. They're being bullied economically. They're being bullied politically. They're being bullied by demagogues who lie to them. They're being bullied by a system that doesn't listen to them. And if we don't stand up to the bullies, if we don't stand up to the fellow who is the bully-in-chief in America, then we are ultimately going to succumb to the bullies.
0: Robert Reich, his new book is The Common Good. Thanks so much. Thank you, John. Now it's time for this week's Russiagate update. Today we turn to Katha Pollitt. She's been thinking about the arguments made by some of our friends on the left who are skeptics about the evidence that Russia attempted to interfere with the 2016 election in an effort to make Trump president. Katha, of course, is a poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for the nation— her most recent book is Pro Reclaiming Abortion Rights. It's out now in paperback. We reached her today in Manhattan. Hi, Katha.
2: Hi, John.
0: Well, let's start with the headlines on Tuesday. House Intelligence Committee Republicans said that their investigation has concluded they found no evidence of collusion between Trump's presidential campaign and Russia. Republicans said they agreed with American intelligence agencies that Russia had interfered, but they broke with the agencies on one crucial point. The Russians, they said, had not favored Trump's candidacy. This ends the investigation by the House Intel Committee. What do you say to that? No evidence of collusion.
2: Well, you know, it's interesting because they didn't interview some very important people here. They didn't interview Manafort, Papadopoulos, Gates all of whom are under indictment, um, you'd think they would, might have something relevant to say. So this is just another example, John, of how the Republican Party has completely corrupted itself and is totally in the tank for Trump.
0: Well, let's look at some of the other arguments made by Russiagate skeptics, including some of our colleagues at The Nation, One of the things they say is that focusing on Russiagate means neglecting more important things. Look at Rachel Maddow. Russiagate is pretty much all she talks about. Well,
2: you know, she does seem a bit obsessed. I I grant them that. But you know, that is really a terrible argument because in life we often have to look at more than one thing at a time. And the idea that because Russiagate is consuming, you know, a certain amount of attention and energy in political discourse means that we're not talking about other things. That's absurd. That's absurd. We are talking about a lot of things, and Russiagate is an important story. I mean, you'll notice nobody says, oh my goodness, gun control is getting too much ink. Let's talk about something else. Me too, too much ink. Let's talk about something else. This is brought out to say... Russiagate is trivial. But how do we know it's trivial before we know exactly what it was?
0: Another thing we hear is that the reason Democrats are focusing on Russiagate is is that they want to avoid talking about the real reasons they lost the election. It wasn't because of Russian interference. It was because of Hillary's campaign. And what we really need to look at is why people didn't vote for Hillary. That's the important thing.
2: Well, I wish I had a penny for every article written about why Hillary's campaign was terrible. There has been no lack of that. (laughs) Okay. You know, it does seem to me that the Democratic Party is doing really well in special elections. Um, And that, to me, argues that a certain amount of energy has been spent by the Democratic Party in saying, you know, we've got to get over the election. We've got to understand what we did wrong. We have to run candidates that will appeal to people. You know, look at Virginia, New Jersey, Washington State. Look, even Alabama. So I would say this picture that the Democrats are just obsessing with Russiagate and not looking to to clean their own house is, is not borne out by the facts.
0: Another thing we hear is that, well, yeah, maybe Russian bots and trolls did post on Facebook and did tweet, but those were really insignificant, hardly seen by anybody in the gigantic world of social media.
2: Well, I don't know anything about analyzing social media, but Columbia University social media analyst Jonathan Albright argued that their organic reach, whatever that may be, I think that's forwards and RTs and all like that, uh, was actually huge, uh, potentially billions of shares. But even if that's not true, even if the critics are right, the social media campaign was a flop, the more important thing, that the Russians are alleged on pretty strong evidence to have done was the mass release of emails from the DNC and John Podesta by WikiLeaks. That got a huge amount of attention, mass publicity, for months and months and months. And that was what solidified the narrative that the primary was fixed, the Democrats are corrupt, Hillary and everyone around her are just horrible people and dishonest schemers. And that set off Pizzagate. Remember Pizzagate? That was a big one. uh, Yeah, that was a big one.
0: Completely different kind of argument that the skeptics offer. If Russia did meddle in our election, it's nothing that we haven't done to other countries for the last 50 years.
2: That comes pretty close to admitting that they did meddle, which is. the (laughs) <laughs> which is the very thing they're supposed to be contesting. But, you know, it's not as if the Russians interfered to avenge our overthrow of Mosaddegh and Allende and many other elected governments. They did it for their own purposes, and I don't see why the proper answer for leftists is that, oh, sure, here we are, come Come interfere with our elections we're bad uh-huh. that that is not the answer. The answer is to say we shouldn't do it, and they shouldn't do it either. Another
0: argument that we get from the skeptics is that focusing on Russiagate won't win elections because voters, especially the voters who aren't already committed Democrats, care mostly about bread and butter issues. They care about health care, about raising the minimum wage, about free college. That's what will win votes for Democrats, and that's what we should all be talking about.
2: Well, I think we are talking about those things. But if you look at at all those people who ran in Virginia— for example. They didn't run on Gate. They ran on Trump is terrible. They ran on, we need, a, you know, we need to uh, have a better highway system. They ran on all kinds of local issues. They got out the vote on the basis of, of those issues and also on the basis of you know, Trump being a terrible president. They ran on the basis of the misogyny that has overtaken our government now. Uh, you know, Russiagate was not the big issue there. Russia isn't the, 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 a big, uh, big issue in any of these Special elections we've been having.
0: One we've seen in the nation over the last few months is that this whole thing is a McCarthyite smear of the skeptics. What do you say to that?
2: Well, you know, McCarthyite is such a funny word because, of course, there hasn't been a Soviet Union for a long time and there isn't a Soviet Union involved in this case, but I think it tries to trade, that word tries to trade on the emotional resonance of a the politics of a bygone era. But uh, under McCarthy, people who criticized our government were accused of being agents of a foreign power. They lost their jobs. A few of them went to jail. But today, McCarthy is being used to say we Russiagate skeptics are being demonized, but they're not. They're not. They're appearing on Tucker Carlson and CNN, like Glenn Greenwald and some of my nation colleagues. Masha Gessen, who has argued against the importance of Gate from the beginning, is one of the most admired journalists in the country, and justly so. So I don't just look around at who is getting attention paid to their words and see, oh, these poor Russia skeptics, no one is listening to them. People are listening to them. They just don't agree with them.
0: And. They're not losing their jobs.
2: And they're not losing their jobs. Um, they're doing very well. And they occupy an enormous amount of uh, quite a bit of, of media real estate, like The Intercept. You know, Masha is at The New Yorker and The New York Review of Books. Our, our magazine has five, count them, five Russia skeptics writing all the time. So I just don't see how McCarthyism has anything to do with this.
0: Katha Pollitt, you can read her new column. It's called Let's Get Real About Russiagate at thenation.com. Thank you, Katha.
2: Thank you so much for having me, John. It's always a pleasure.
0: March 16th is the 50th anniversary of the My Lai Massacre, the day Americans killed more than 500 unarmed Vietnamese civilians in one hamlet. Many people don't know how it ended. An American helicopter pilot landed there and at gunpoint told the American troops to stop the killing. And they did. That helicopter pilot was Hugh Thompson. He's the man who stopped the My Lai Massacre I spoke with him in February 2000 for KPFK Radio in Los Angeles. March 16th, 1968, you were a helicopter pilot in Vietnam, and what was your mission that day?
3: Uh, to provide uh, aerial scout reconnaissance to the uh, ground troops we had uh, inserted on the, on the ground that day, and uh, try to f- locate... Get out in front of them, try to locate the enemy, draw fire from the enemy, and let the uh, infantry people know, you know, where, where it was coming from or where to watch out for or take it out.
0: So then that morning you took off, you flew over the hamlet of Milai. I understand you didn't see uh, many Viet Cong troops that that morning.
3: Now, when we, on our first pass, right after the infantry had been inserted, and they were inserted... Away from the village, they had you know they had a little area to cross, open area rice fields to get to the village. We made our first pass out in front of them. We did see one uh, Viet Cong exiting the village uh, with a weapon. I told Larry to you know get him, uh, and uh,
0: Larry, Larry was your gunner, Larry Colburn.
3: Yeah, yeah right. And uh, we missed him, and he made it into the tree line and. Got away, and that was the only sign of danger we encountered that whole day. We never received a round. We never saw anybody with a weapon, and no weapons were captured that day.
0: So, what did you see when you flew over the that hamlet of Milai?
3: We started noticing these, you know, large number of bodies everywhere, uh, and throughout the village. That well, not throughout the village, in certain areas of the village, they weren't there before. Uh, people on the road, you know, dead, wounded, and just sitting there saying, you know, God, how'd this happen? Uh, what's going on? And we we started thinking what might have happened, but you didn't want to accept that thought because if you accepted it, that means your own fellow Americans and people you were there to protect were doing something very evil.
0: And, and who were the people who were uh, lying in the uh, in the roads and, and in the ditch, wounded and killed?
3: Uh, they were non-combatants. They were old women, old men, children, kids, babies, babies. Uh, no weapons. And don't don't get me wrong. Every, every every person that died that day or got murdered could have been a Viet Cong, just with no weapon visible. It could have been a Viet Cong sympathizer. But the way I was trained and the way American soldiers are trained is if Hitler walks out of a bunker and lays his weapon down, he's no longer your enemy. He is a prisoner of war.
0: So what did you do then?
3: Uh, We continued to recon, and the next big thing, I guess, was we came across a ditch that had, oh, I'd say over 100 bodies in it. Uh, and we noticed some of them were still alive. And we were thinking, how'd these people get in the ditch? And we had the thought coming in our mind, but it, I wouldn't accept it at first because I tried to come up with scenarios of how they got in the ditch, like they were hit with the artillery when it came in. Or when the Americans came through, they just gathered up all the dead bodies that had been killed by the artillery and thrown in the ditch. And we couldn't live with that one either because there were you know, people in the ditch that weren't wounded. And then the thought kind of sucked in that these people might have been marched out in the ditch and slaughtered. So we stopped again, sat down, got out of the aircraft, went up to a uh, lieutenant and a sergeant, Cody there One some wounded civilians in the ditch, could they help them out? Uh, said they could help them out of their misery.
0: They could help them out of their misery.
3: Yes, sir. And I said, oh, come on, guys, quit joking around here. They said, okay, we'll take care of it. So this got back in the aircraft and took off. Uh, Glenn Anderata, who was my crew chief, I was sitting on my left, and took the aircraft off and made my turn. We heard machine gun fire going off. And then Glenn comes over the, the intercom and just says, My God, they're firing into the ditch. Uh,
0: you land then, sometime after that, you landed again.
3: Yeah, we saw, uh, well we couldn't deny what was going on. And... uh I want to bring out the infantry soldier has the uh, hardest job there is in the military, I think. And I admire them. As long as they, you know, do their job honorably and how they were taught. We put 190 people on the ground that day. Only about 13 to 18, maybe 23 took part in this. Not everybody did, and everybody, a lot of other people were as outraged as I was. But later, we saw... uh, civilians hiding in the bunker, Uh, cowering, kind of looking out the door, and saw some advancing Americans coming that way. And I'd asked for help twice now and got people killed. So I just figured it was time to, you know, do something, just, you know, not let these people get killed. So landed the aircraft in between the Americans and the Vietnamese. Told my crew chief and gunner to cover me got out of the aircraft, went over to the American side and said, you know, there's some uh, civilians right up ahead in the bunker. Can you help them out? And I told them with a the hand grenade, and I guess that's when I got a little hot and told them just to hold their people there. I think I can do better. And I've already told my people to shoot if y'all should. And I like, let's be cool. Whatever. And I thank God to this day that... Uh, Everybody did stay cool. Nobody
0: opened up. So so uh, you told these American troops that if they uh, if they fired on the Vietnamese uh, civilians in the bunker, that you and your crew would open fire on them. Is that right? Yes, sir. So basically you put your own life and the lives of your crew in between those Vietnamese civilians and the American soldiers who were advancing on them at Mila. You. You risk your lives to protect those Vietnamese civilians that day.
3: Well, it didn't come to that, so, I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know. The, uh, it was time to stop it, and I figured at that point uh, that was the only way, you know, that this uh, madness or whatever you want to call it could be stopped.
0: Well, and you did stop it that day.
3: We are we are given credit for that, yes, sir.
0: Well, Hugh Thompson, let let me just say to you, uh, thank you, thank you for what you did that day, March sixteenth, nineteen sixty eight, in in
3: My Lai. Uh Thank you very much, sir.
0: Uh, Trent, let me ask you a question. Trent Andrews, author of the Forgotten Hero of Mili, the Hugh Thompson story, uh, to me, one of the most amazing thing in this very strong and moving book, is. It's called Appendix Number 1. It's a list of the 504 people killed in the My Lai Massacre. The names of every one of them, Vietnamese name, age, and whether they were uh, male or female. I have never seen a list like this before. How did you decide to put this in the book, and and what did it take to put this list together?
4: The Embassy of Vietnam in Washington, D.C., helped us to to get this list. Um, These are... Are only 504 of the 2.3 million or 3, 2.7 million, whatever the number is, and this was an effort to to humanize the uh, the people. Um, we did a st- something of an analysis of by age and so forth, and we found that um, um, there were about 50 people who were age three years old or younger, Oof. which is to say age one, two, or three. 50. Uh, Right, there were 50 uh, babies, essentially. There were 69 people who were between the ages of 4 and 7. There were 91 between the ages of 8 and 12. Um, I think that these numbers speak for themselves as to the horror of what happened at Milan.
0: We only have a couple of minutes left to talk to you, too. I wanted to follow the story to the... To this happier ending, uh, Hugh, you were finally awarded the Soldiers' Medal by the Army, acknowledging the value of uh, what you did. That was awarded on March 6, 1998 at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington. You've also recently taken a trip back to Vietnam. You went back to the hamlet of My Lai, and you met some of the people whose lives you saved back in nineteen. 19- 68. Can you tell us a little about that trip?
3: The trip was uh, very much a roller coaster. There were real good highs and very low lows. Uh, One of the ladies that we had uh, helped out that day came up to me and asked, where, why? Why didn't the people who committed these acts come back with you? And I was just, you know, devastated at that. Yeah. And then she finished her sentence, and she said, so we could forgive them. Mm. I'm not man enough to do that. I'm sorry. I, I, I wish I should be. I wish I was, but... I won't lie to anybody. I'm I'm not that much of a man.
0: And you said there were some highs as well as that low.
3: There's always a question in my mind. Did, Did anybody know? We all aren't like that. Did they know that somebody tried to help? And yes, they did know that. So that... That aspect of it made me feel, you know, real good.
0: Well, my conclusion here today is that the massacre of 500 unarmed Vietnamese civilians at the hamlet of My Lai, it was committed by Americans, but it was also stopped by Americans. And Hugh Thompson, thanks to you. Thank you for what you did at My Lai, and thank you for talking to us today.
3: Thank you, sir, very much.
0: Hugh Thompson. He died in January 2006. He was only 63. I spoke with him in February 2000. March 16th is the 50th anniversary of the Milai Massacre. <laughs> finally, a word about this week's episode of Dave Siren's Edge of Sports podcast, our sister podcast here at The Nation. This week, Dave talks about why athlete activists matter with former NBA player Aitan Thomas. That's this week on the Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. Tune in every Tuesday at thenation.com slash sports. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our show is recorded and edited by Lyra Smith, Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vanden is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts.
1: Say goodbye